0: health affairs this week. I'm Leslie Erdelak.
1: And I'm Kathleen Haddad.
0: And today we're catching up on some recent news out of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services related to hospitals and consumers. And the way I see it, at least, um, Kathleen, these two stories we're focusing on, although They're pretty different. I I do think they're related in the sense that they deal with the various regulatory obligations, um, sort of the business practices and operational issues that directly affect hospitals and ultimately um, the people that they serve.
1: I think you're right, on Leslie. The rule about um, rural hospitals is of interest because there's been growing concern about the closures of rural hospitals. What do we know about that?
0: Yeah, so CMS recently issued a proposed rule, and we can talk about that in a minute. But yeah, we've we've heard a lot of stories about hospitals in rural communities closing in the last you know ten or twelve years. Seventy five rural hospitals closed completely, um, meaning that they stopped providing services altogether. There were 19 rural hospitals that closed in 2020 alone, and there were even more hospitals that had to give up um, offering inpatient care. People in rural communities already have fewer local healthcare providers, and this is on top of the fact that they have to travel um, greater distances to see them. And so these closures... Um, make it even harder to get routine and emergency medical care, which I think is scary enough to think about. but on a deeper level, these closures make healthcare care inequities um, that many rural Americans face even worse. And we know that people in rural areas have shorter life expectancies. When a rural hospital closes, the mortality rates in those communities actually go up. There are other repercussions too. Um, the local economy takes a big hit when all of those healthcare jobs disappear. And so there's been a lot of attention on the closures themselves, but there's also been a lot of concern too about just the viability and the solvency of the facilities that remain. And so this proposed rule from CMS stems from, you know, that long period of hospital closures and from the notion that, you know, something needs to change to prevent these closures um, from continuing to happen and um, making sure people have access to
1: emergency services. So, Leslie, what does the rule uh, say specifically?
0: Okay, so there's a little bit of a backstory. And um, so in, in December 2020, Congress passed the Consolidated Appropriations Act. And so in doing this, they created a new Medicare provider type called the Rural Emergency Hospital. It's a little weedy, but this is a new designation recognized by CMS where a hospital can convert to a facility that provides 24-hour emergency services but not inpatient care. Just for some context, this is the first new rural hospital type in about 20 years. The last time we saw this was in the late 90s when critical access hospitals emerged if you're looking for a point of comparison. And maybe just in terms of the motivation behind it, if you're wondering why Congress would sort of endorse the idea of hospitals that don't provide inpatient services but they just focus on um, emergency care, you can sort of think about this as an option for rural communities that might be too small to support a full-service um, acute care hospital, but they but they still have needs, you know, that go beyond ambulatory care, outpatient care, and this new program is sort of a lifeline, you know, particularly if you're stuck between keeping the doors to your traditional hospital open or closing them completely. In order to become a rural emergency hospital, there are certain conditions and requirements that you have to meet. And that's where the proposed rule comes in. So, CMS is laying out all of these conditions and the criteria for becoming this type of healthcare provider. Basically, if you're a rural hospital with fewer than 50 beds and you think that this type of facility would meet the needs of your community, then you can submit an application to become a rural emergency hospital, but you have to abide by certain rules um, put out by CMS to participate in the Medicare and Medicaid programs and to demonstrate that you're able to provide high-quality care. And so assuming that these conditions are met and their plans are approved, then these hospitals are then eligible to get enhanced payment uh, for their
1: services. So is that the point of the rule to address the issue of uh, closures due to financial distress? Does the rule um, address the problem of financial viability significantly?
0: Sort of. So we know that financial distress is a big risk factor for hospitals closing. It's really expensive. um, As you might imagine, to run an acute care hospital, the cost structure is such that it's hard to bring in the revenue that you need and Rural areas, just given their population, you're not going to have the patient volume. And that affects whether or not um, you can accept payment under Medicare. And then sort of a separate issue, many rural hospitals, and this really gets to your question, I think, but many rural hospitals are in communities where um, you have greater shares of poor um, or older residents, and so they're more likely to be covered by public insurance programs like Medicaid or Medicare. And they often reimburse um, these hospitals for less than the cost of providing that care. You know, if you're a rural emergency hospital under this new plan, you become eligible for higher federal reimbursement rates, um, which could be um, beneficial, potentially. The proposed rule says that CMS would pay hospitals through Medicare at sort of the standard rate plus 5%. um, But that would also they would also provide a monthly facility fee that has not really been specified, and kind of the details of those payment policies still need to be worked through um, through a separate rulemaking process. But I think, yeah, without question, it's an important part of the equation, and you know, probably something of a deciding factor for some of these hospitals.
1: So, when uh, what's next with the comment? Is there a comment per- period, and um, when when can rural hospitals expect to actually? adopt this designation and get paid for it
0: so I think they can start getting paid on January 1 of next year but with any proposed rule you know there's um, there's a comment period CMS invites comments as it develops its final policies and those are expected to be finalized later this year um, the, the comment period closes later in August and as I said the proposed payment and enrollment policies are going to be developed under a separate rulemaking so we' we'll, of course, um, want to continue to observe how that process plays out. But Kathleen, so elsewhere, you know, in CMS, uh, the agency started, you know, enforcing a new price transparency rule for insurers. So kind of switching gears, what's that about?
1: Well, we were talking about rural hospitals uh, needing some um, financial support And in this context, in a way, we can look at it, this rule is helping consumers with financial support because the goal is for consumers to know what they will be responsible for in terms of costs for any service that they want or need before they get it. So this rule was supposed to take effect in January, but uh, CMS delayed enforcement until July 1st last week. It, the rule requires health insurers to publish machine-readable files containing the negotiated price, prices that insurers pay to hospitals. So this includes the allowed amount, which is kind of um, a magic number because it's been um, guarded so secretly by insurers. Um, it's the amount upon which insurers compute their co-payments. The co-payments, and then consumers need to know that so they can, uh, if they want to know what they're going to pay, um, the. Uh, rule applies to both in-network and out-of-network providers. And for out-of-network providers, the build charges um, uh, should be published. And as I said, this is a huge step because this information has been considered proprietary for so long.
0: Yeah. And on the surface, I, you know, anytime I hear about price transparency, I think, you know, this sounds like a complete game changer in terms of the way that people shop for healthcare services. And you know, I I know enough to know it's more complicated than that. So how does this how is this rule supposed to help consumers?
1: Well right now it really won't help consumers. What it is right now is a huge dump of data um, by insurers. Last Friday, I tried opening one uh, file, and I just gave up. The issue, the the, the real uh, point at which consumers will be helped is after private vendors take this information and and make it consumer-friendly. Next year, however, uh, January 1, the uh, rule requires insurers to publish an internet-based price comparison tool for 500 services, and that would allow consumers to receive an estimate of their cost-sharing responsibility for a specific service from a specific provider. Then on January 1, 2024, these price comparison tools must include all items and services.
0: Yeah, this one has been a long time coming. And for those of us who need a reminder, I mean, I think we're talking about the the distinction between rules for hospitals and rules for insurers. So can you explain what prompted the former rule?
1: Well, if you're referring to the former rule, um, there is a previous rule for hospitals to, uh, that hospitals should publish um, all of the prices that they charge to insurers and to private consumers who pay cash. This rule that applies to insurers is similar to that hospital price transparency rule. Both of these grew out of the ACA as an effort to use price transparency to contain healthcare costs. The hospital rule uh, required um, hospitals to post their standard charges. Um, As I said, the negotiated charges as well. There has been some concern about whether they're really doing that. Have they? (laughs) Well, some have. Um, CMS did an audit earlier this year that showed 30% compliance, 30% of hospitals And the rest uh, of the hospitals were entered into enforcement efforts to help them comply. Uh, There was a separate survey done by a private advocacy group that found lower compliance of 14%. And there are, um, the, the advocates are arguing that CMS has to do more to enforce the hospital transparency rule two hospitals in that vein, two hospitals, uh, were recently fined by CMS in Georgia One about $800,000, another about $200,000. I browsed through the, you know, that enforcement action. And, um, it's interesting. It repeatedly says, even though CMS reached out, there was no, um, th- they simply said they weren't, they didn't do it. And I don't, <laughs> Yeah, compare that, that to me not turning something in. I need to for work. I don't do that. that wouldn't work.
0: Yeah, I saw that. That's um, that's interesting. Why do you think we're seeing such a big push right now to help consumers? I mean, you know, I can sort of understand why in this economy, you know, people be more interested in sort of projecting their out of pocket um, costs, but it doesn't seem like. It's been a top priority for insurers um, and providers until more recently.
1: This effort, price transparency effort, is a, a policy effort to try to contain cost growth in health care. Sherry Gleed, an economist at NYU, who most of our l- listeners have probably read or heard, um, she says this uh, price transparency effort and these rules are a seismic shift and a middle ground between utilization management to contain costs and price regulation. I think that the best case scenario, well, I'll I'll quote Sherry, who says that the best case scenario for this information is that it will help researchers uh, look for better ways than price transparency to contain costs. And she says that only partly in tongue in cheek.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I think just to wrap up, I think the question that looms large, you know, is, is will- price transparency work. And I think it's definitely worth watching to see how things evolve, particularly on the compliance side, but also to the extent that consumers are actively engaged in using this pricing information to make decisions about their health care. So yeah, I'm sure we'll learn a lot. But that's it for us. Thanks to our listeners. And thanks, Kathleen, for joining me.
1: Thank you, Leslie.
0: You can catch us next week. If you like this episode, leave us a review, tell a friend, subscribe to Health Affairs this week, wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks.